In the name of God, Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Preachers are often wisely counseled to address from the pulpit whatever issues they know are on people's minds when they're walking into church. Everything I have to say today has been informed by the events of the past week and all that has led up to them, but I won't touch upon them directly. So I'm very grateful to you, Alex, for evoking us in a spirit of recollection and hope as we begin and throughout our time together that knowing that our sighs, too deep for words, speak to God um, with the depth of emotion we feel, not only for those who lost their lives in Florida, but for the 800,000 young people fearing deportation from the only country they've ever known as home. So, the day after President Trump's election, we held a service at Washington National Cathedral. We had planned it for weeks, recognizing that no matter the election's outcome, we would need to pray and pray together for the nation. And the biblical image that came to me that day, as I struggled to find words to speak, the image that came was exile, that many of us woke up that Wednesday morning feeling exiled in our own land. And we knew that had the election gone the other way, at least as many others would have felt the same way. In fact, one of our more theologically conservative priests of the diocese wrote me afterwards to say that he was among those who have felt in exile, not only in our country, but in the Episcopal Church for a very long time. So no matter where we fall on whatever spectrum, exile may not be, exile might actually be a, a common place of meeting. And I don't know about you, maybe you have that feeling of exile still, perhaps not. Regardless, I'd like to frame today our experience, reflecting on the time we're in now, through a different biblical lens, another image that comes to us every year at this time, and that is the lens of wilderness. The season of Lent, as you, as you well know, is patterned on Jesus' time in the wilderness, where he was driven there by the Spirit, we're told, after his baptism for 40 days and 40 nights, resonant of the ancient Israelites 40 years in the wilderness after escaping slavery in Egypt. Now, wilderness and exile have some things in common. They are both seasons and states of dislocation and disorientation. And we rarely go to either place uh, by choice, but instead are driven there, as Jesus was, by circumstances or forces that are larger than we are. But while the terrain may be similar, the reasons were there and the work we're given to do could not be more different. In exile, we must learn to make our home in a new place, much like the refugee family you are preparing to welcome here. In contrast, when we enter a wilderness, we're never meant to stay there. It's a pass-through place on the way to somewhere else. It's a time and a place of testing, of trial, and God willing, of transformation. 
We're not in control of what happens to us in the wilderness any more than we are in exile, but how we respond to our circumstances and what God is doing in the midst of them will in large measure determine the direction of our lives and the impact of our witness in this world when we get to the other side. And we will get there someday when we're ready, when we're ready. You know that it wasn't distance that kept the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the promised land. I think the terrain was about eight miles, but it took them that long to be ready. So let's get ready. Let's get our bearings in the wilderness we find ourselves in so that we can be open to all that God wants to teach us here. For starters, let's remember that being in the wilderness isn't necessarily an indication that we've done something wrong. While it is by definition a hard place, a lean place, landing in the wilderness can be one of the best things that's ever happened to us. The wilderness is where Jesus went, as Frederick Buechner once said, it's where Jesus went to learn what it meant to be Jesus. It's where we learn something of who we are and what matters to us the most. It's where we distinguish between the essential from the trivial and discover, which is a very freeing thing, how little we actually need to thrive. As I said, it's a lean place. You get what you need there, but not much more than that. And there's a nomadic quality to the wilderness, which I'm sure as a church you can relate to. And while the Israelites were in the wilderness, you remember, they complained of hunger and actually became nostalgic for their days in slavery, when at least they were given something to eat. So God sends them, remember what he sends them? Manna this bland, sticky grain that they could gather up each morning, enough for the day. And the day before the Sabbath, they could gather up enough for two days. But otherwise, if they tried to hoard or keep the manna, it would rot. And the lesson couldn't be more clear. In the wilderness, you get your daily bread from God. No more, no less. It's not the greatest of bread either, by the way, but it will keep you alive. I once heard someone describe the kind of guidance God gives in the wilderness as that which comes to you one bit at a time. It's not a smorgasbord, she said, where you can pick and choose. You receive one insight to act upon. And after you do, you get the next. And when you act on that, you get the next, each step requiring some response from you. The novelist E.K. Doctorow said much the same thing about the work of writing a novel. He said it's like driving in the fog with your headlights on. You can't see very far ahead, but you can make an entire journey that way, going as far as the light will let you see. And traveling in the wilderness can feel like that, moving forward according to just enough light, not being sure, as the choir sang so well, of the destination, but knowing you'll know when you get there. There's also a sense of cleansing that comes as part of a wilderness experience or a shedding, maybe, of patterns 
or ways of being that fit you once but no longer do. Anne Lamott tells a famous story of a time when she went dress shopping with her friend Pam, who was dying of cancer. And modeling one of the dresses that she especially liked for Pam, she was twirling around, you know, she asked if it made her look fat. And her dying friend was quiet for a moment and said, Annie, I don't think you have that kind of time. The wilderness is a great place to ask ourselves what we don't have time for anymore, the ways of being ourselves that no longer suit us. And in the wilderness, maybe we're invited to lay that down. We get to flex new spiritual muscles in the wilderness. Sometimes, and this is certainly true, we feel very far from God. And we must learn the disciplines we need to keep our own candles burning on our own. But it's also possible to feel an extraordinary connection to God, even in desolation. I have to tell you, the second time I met Bishop Gene Robinson, the first time was at a conference, second time was way before his election as bishop. And he had come to our diocese, the Diocese of Minnesota, to lead a clergy conference. And so this would have been, I'm guessing, in the late 90s. And he spoke of his wilderness time, the time when he decided to be honest with himself and come out as a gay man, and what that meant, the cost, the loss of his marriage, the loss of the daily joys of parenting his children, and the near loss of his vocation in the church. And he said, I crawled into bed each night with only my integrity and my relationship to God intact. And I learned that those two things were enough. They were enough. And there is something exhilarating about knowing God that way and knowing that we are now spiritually prepared to face just about anything. I heard someone say after a horrific event in her life, I know that I will never be afraid of anything again. And someone else said, uh, a woman said, after facing a mean-spirited authority figure in her life and holding her ground, she said, I know that I will never be anyone's good little girl again. These are wilderness statements. When you can say that, you've learned what you need to learn, and you can move on. Now, and the last thing I want to say about this, echoing Bishop Robinson again, is that this place, this wilderness place, is uh, one of tremendous honesty and integrity. It's where you and I learn to be who we are. So if someone were to ask you or me to state our truth, our truth, the essence of who we are and what we live for, we can do it. And the wilderness is where God sends us to learn that and to learn who God is to us. It is, as you know, this is a costly gift, but priceless. You can live your whole life from the insights you glean in the wilderness. Okay, so let me wrap this up by giving you a bit of homework, a little wilderness homework if you're inclined. 
a way to go a bit deeper in this theme, if you wish. First, um, pull out your Bible and read and contrast the biblical accounts of Jesus' time in the wilderness, as you just heard it read from the Gospel of Mark, and then flip over to the Gospel of Luke or Matthew. It doesn't matter. They're both about the same. And the contrasting readings will take you less than five minutes, I promise. Um, but it takes a little bit longer to ponder, and it's worth pondering. What were the temptations that Satan put before Jesus? And what, does, what do his responses tell us about him? And then ask the deeper question, what temptations would Satan put before you to keep you from your true path? And if you don't like Satan, pick another image of whatever it is that would conspire to keep you small, conspire to keep you stuck, conspire to keep you from speaking your truth. And second, um, pull up on your app or today's paper two articles from the Washington Post. The first is a feature article in the style section which traces the stunning career of African-American director Ava DuVernay whose film adaptation of Madeleine L'Engle's A Wrinkle in Time opens next month. And her story, I kid you not, is the greatest example of wilderness training preparing a person for an important life work than I've read in a long time. And one, just a couple of quips from that, one, one little phrase. DuVernay's, uh, am I pronouncing that right? DuVernay's rise is not an accident, the author says. It's about talent, long hours, and the way you treat people, about not doing things the same way because that's the way they've always been done. Oh, and always remember, you may be the first to get that big break. For her, it was a $100 million budget, right? You may be the first of your people to get that break, but you were not the first one to deserve it. And she, she writes of a particularly low moment in her career right after she had won some real acclaim with her production of Selma, right? A big, big acclaimed film. But nothing came to her after that. The phone never rang, nothing. And she said it was really hard not to be bitter when all her white boy counterparts were moving up in Hollywood and she felt passed by. But you know what she did? She reached out to a friend who happened to be Oprah Winfrey, I know, <laughs> I know, but she can be our friend too. And she rededicated herself to her craft, her purpose, by creating what she could create. She went back to television. She'd go back to doing commercials, she said, if she had to, because she was determined to create a different world, a different way of doing film, a different way of being and showing that it can be done. And the second article is called A, Pol a Politician in is Born. It's in the magazine section, which is an exile to wilderness story, if there ever was one, highlighting all the women motivated to run for political office in the wake of the last presidential election. And, and here's the thing, learning what it takes to be successful in that. Learning what it takes as a political novice to enter the game Motivation, training, confidence building, fundraising prowess, the right wardrobe, networking skills. You don't learn these things overnight. You take, it takes time and patience and a willingness to fail 
And where do you go to learn these things? You go to the wilderness. And so while our current body of politicians are doing whatever it is they're doing, there is a rising body of women and men in wilderness training right now, doing all that they can to get ready when it's their time to replace them. The wilderness is where God sends us to prepare for a future we can't yet see, but is there. And I can't help but wonder what it is that you, as a church, are being prepared for now. What spiritual attributes you will need for your life together when that building, when that beautiful building is done. And with that in mind, I'm going to leave you with one final wilderness image, this one directly related to the creation of a building. The renowned architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, near the end of his life, taught a master class for gifted young architects. These were the rising stars in their field, and they were eager to innovate and do bold things in dramatic ways. They were really good. They were full of themselves. And Wright looked at them and said, look, why don't you go to work on yourselves? No stream can rise higher than its source. You can build no greater buildings than you are. So why not you become the person you would have your buildings be? We are not in exile anymore. We are in wilderness training, every single one of us. And I'm here to bless you and to pray with you and to cheer you on. St. Thomas, as you become the church, your new building is created to house. And each one of you is in the wilderness terrain of your own life, and I just want you to know that you are meant to be here. There are lessons for you to learn here. And God will show you and me the way out of here to where we're called one wilderness step at a time. Amen.